Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Designing for Resilience In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, Aaron Peretti returns as we try to make sense of 2020 from an innovation perspective. Aaron is the author of Today's Innovator. He's an innovation expert with 17 years of experience innovating in complex organizations. Through his company, Today's Innovator, and his writing, Aaron's mission is to connect and empower the innovators found within each of us. Aaron and I talk about 2020 and how we're making sense of it. We discuss disruption of previously successful business models, the winners and losers of the year, as well as historic parallels to the 1920s. We dig deep into sense-making, wayfinding, and crisis innovation closing with what lessons we might take away from a very crazy year. It was great having Aaron back on the podcast. I thank him for his time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode and wish you the best in 2021. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me again on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I always love our conversations. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I'm excited to be back. Um, I am a reformed corporate innovator. I spent 17 years uh, behind four walls trying to innovate uh, in large financial services organizations, including Capital One and Transamerica, uh, to name a few. The pinnacle of my corporate career was as chief innovation officer, chief customer advocate, and ultimately the head of the marketing innovation lab at Transamerica. Uh, as you might imagine, that burnt me out a little bit. So I left the corporate world in 2016 now. Uh, so we're at, we're at four plus years uh, to just see what I wanted to be when I grow up. And so I've been spending the last four years uh, following my interests, you know, whatever thread I follow, or whatever thread I see of interest, I, I tend to follow it. And uh, it's been a wild ride. Uh, so I wrote a book on innovation a couple years ago, Today's Innovator, and I've uh, built that into a small uh, coaching facilitation uh, speaking company called Today's Innovator. Um, so that's it. Yeah, that's who I am. Great. No, thank you. And yeah, I love what you're doing with uh, Today's Innovator. And like you uh, mentioned, I always love when we have a chance to sit down and nerd out about innovation. So for this episode, we're we're digging into uh, kind of looking back uh, 2020, a, a year in review with with our innovation lenses on. So, you know, a, a lot to cover in uh, what happened, uh, a lot of different different things going on in 2020. But we wanted to maybe start out with a little bit from kind of winners or losers. Who, who did we see? Uh, do well and not so well, and may, maybe let's start with uh, you know the losers or, or those that really struggled with all that was going on this year. Yeah, you know we've all consumed so much media uh, throughout the year. The, the habits around media have changed. I, I maybe put that in, in the winner column, but yeah. what I what I'm, the point I'm getting at is I don't want to st- state the obvious in this conversation, right? Your listeners are tuning in to find something pretty unique. Uh, so we, we can get get past the obvious very quickly, right? Small businesses right. have really seen a big challenge in 2020. Uh, nonprofits that don't see a way forward or don't know how they're going to survive uh, because they rely on donations from in-person events and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe their donation volumes are down. Uh, so we, we all know those because we're seeing them in the news every day. Um, some other losers that I've seen, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we saw these earlier on, but they have already, we have, we're consuming so much that it's difficult to even remember, but uh, big department stores uh, really dried up. Um, I investigated that early, uh, earlier on in the year. Why were they closing their doors when someone like Target or Amazon doesn't have to close their doors? And I spoke with a woman at uh, TJ Maxx who explained to me some of the business model differences. Um, many of the big department stores are ordering their inventory nine, nine to 12 months in advance. And so they just didn't have the cash reserves to survive. So we saw Pier 1, we saw uh, Nordstrom's, a few others declare bankruptcy throughout the course of the year. 
Uh, so big loser there just because they didn't have the business model resilience to get through uh, the pandemic. I don't think we no, no one saw it coming, uh, not on this scale, at least. Yeah, what's interesting, especially you you mentioning Nordstrom's, because uh, for me, they were Nordstrom's is for a long time. Uh, a poster child in a good way, like celebrated for, you know, really strong customer service. And I feel like on a department store perspective, uh, they kind of were able to nail and scale the ability to really service the customer and some folklore around them as well, too, about, you know, their basically their customer policy was something like, I believe it was one sentence, but it was make the customer happy or do what's right for the customer to help guide uh, the individual actors in this huge ecosystem. So they, for, and I agree with you, it, it, a really interesting one that how, how they struggled, but I do love your, your insight on the business models, both for winners and losers. I do feel like when we're confronted with all that we've seen in 2020, but it's, uh, it really brings to bear the, the strength or weakness of business models and plans and agility and, Long ago, uh, I used to talk about it kind of like a garden hose where you might have a few holes in your garden hose, but if it's not turned up all the way, uh, you, you won't see water spraying out of those. But when when you apply a lot of pressure, you start to see where all these weak spots are. And so yeah. so I wonder, too, how many of these were, were things that uh, business leaders maybe saw coming kind of like we'll, we'll get to that at some point or were completely blindsided and. I don't know, from my perspective, just how extreme, uh, especially, you know, coronavirus, you know, novel uh, coronavirus, uh, even in its name, novel and new. And we haven't, you know, we'll jump into some par parallels in, in uh, a little bit in the conversation. But uh, in the States, we really haven't lived through uh, a pandemic or epidemic like this. And so I think it's hard to even, you know, generations of people have come and gone in business and not have, have to worry about that. Yeah, I know when I was at Capital One, we prepared our business models for stress, right? We had stress scenarios and everything that we did. And I'm not sure that anyone saw this type of stress coming. It just wasn't one of the scenarios that we had built in at least 20 years ago when I was there, 15 years ago when I was there. It wasn't something we were planning for. So it's, you know, you, with all, even all the best planning in the world, if you take the travel industry, for instance, there's nothing they can do. You, you know, there's no scenario planning for no one coming to your town. Right. There's, <laughs> there's really no resilience you could be building in. And so it's difficult to plan for in that respect. Yeah. Uh, to your point, even just this week, uh, seeing footage of people scrambling to try to get home in Europe from, uh, I, I believe it, France was basically shutting its doors because of some uh, new, new strains of uh, COVID-19 kind of popping up and some fear of that. So yeah, I, d I don't know where in any scenario plans, war games, pre-incident plans you might have that all travel stops is a is a scenario that somebody put forward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether it changes individual behavior in terms of savings and you know saving for the rainy day or saving for the the next shutdown of of whatever it is that impacts your business. Uh, as an ind we saw so many individuals impacted with record unemployment rates and. Uh, everyone knows someone who's been impacted at an individual level, uh, whether it's, it's a sad, tragic story of loss or whether it's a story of loss of job. We've all seen it. And so there's very likely to be some long lasting implications on individual behavior. So even if the businesses aren't reacting appropriately, there could be this second safety net, which is how the individual is responding. So you imagine a, a small business owner in the travel industry during when times are good, perhaps in the future is saving a lot more, putting a lot more away for the rainy day or for the time when the borders, like like you're saying in France, might might shut down unexpectedly. Yeah, it's interesting that you're you're talking about those behaviors because um, as we were getting re ready for for this and and also thinking about some of the historical context. On a personal note, it was hard for me not to think about uh, my grandparents because their their generation were folks that lived through the Great Depression and how that, um, you know, and, and we'll get into it, but, you know, from economic boom to Great Depression to how that shaped the way they thought about uh, financing uh, and being really, really conservative and uh, almost, you know, kind of snake bitten on uh, 
maybe opportunities that started to present themselves in when we saw a lot of economic growth in the 50s and 60s in the US, but a lot of conservative behavior from uh, a generation that had seen so many things wiped out. Yeah. But uh, uh, there'll be doom and gloom spread throughout. But let's get back to the positive. Uh, we did see some some winners, some people that uh, uh, are able to pivot. Some smaller companies, some larger. But uh, let's talk a little bit about who you had as some of the winners for twenty twenty. Yeah, I know this is a bit of a polarizing personality, but everything Elon Musk seems to touch has been winning lately. Uh, whether it's Tesla or SpaceX, uh, both are remarkable stories of innovation in 2021 during the pandem pandemic. Uh, Tesla has seen its transformation away from this notion of it being a car company to everyone now understanding that it's a bigger company than that. And it's got its tentacles in a lot of different industries, including battery tech, which is, is the, where they've, uh, they've won on the, on the frontier of innovation. Um, they're, they're still pushing battery technology to, to places where people didn't think it could go. Uh, so just remarkable fortitude to push through uh, and, and, you know, wherever your politics lie and, and how they how they approached it, their business right. has has come out on the other side as a winner. And SpaceX just continues to do remarkable things as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting business model altogether, the privatization of, of space travel, get it, their main client being NASA. Uh, right. Yeah, just a very, very strange business model, but they've capitalized upon it and continue to push um, literally into new frontiers uh, in, in space travel. And then there's the, the ones that we all see every day, which is Zoom. You know, you and I are doing this right now over Zoom, and this right. is a company that, that saw a huge boom at the beginning of the year. It'd be interesting to explore why Zoom and why not Google Hangouts, why not Microsoft Teams. You know, what, what was it about Zoom that led to this wide-scale massive adoption and uh, the creation of a, of a new language? You know, let's have a Zoom. Let's pull up and have a Zoom. Right. Yeah, that, that wasn't there a year ago. Um, and then a couple other winners that, that I've seen. Uh, on the markets front, we've seen cryptocurrencies and gold continue to increase. And so we can't ignore the fact that we've pumped so much money, you know, printed so much money as a federal government. Um, so commodity prices are going to rise, right? Printing money is going to create inflation and then anything that has a fixed price or anything that has a price is going to go up. Uh, and we've seen that in cryptocurrencies and, and gold in particular. Um, so real interesting. I, I had another note here. Uh, Amazon, you know, Amazon yeah. is a winner, you know, certainly. It can be the villain, right? People can point to it and say that it's taking away the jobs, that it's, it's taking away the small businesses. Um, but I don't know where many of us would be without it and our ability to get things delivered to our homes, whether that's a uh, paper towel or hand sanitizer or whatever it might be gifts for the holidays. It's been, it's been the lifeblood of, of, or the backbone of the American economy throughout the better part of 2020. Yeah. I, I want to dig in a little bit on uh, a, a few of these, just going back to uh, Tesla. And for me, what I find interesting, a lot of, a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, batteries and uh, re reconceptualizing almost the electrical grid and how we get power. Uh, and I think that's almost forgotten, right? Because I think Tesla kind of like top of mind is electric vehicles, but the the battery elements that are are sitting there and as you with SpaceX and and maybe ignoring if you you like them or not as a person with Elon Musk, but I have to believe that uh his commitment to first principles uh, is is something that has positioned both Tesla and SpaceX to uh, capitalize in their environment, or maybe not capitalize, but be successful right with these different scenarios. Because I think they, for lack of better terms, I think they have a clearer vision of what they're about, and so they can also see what signal and what's noise in a complicated marketplace. And that's, that's just kind of my take, but I'm kind of curious about, about your reaction to them using kind of a first principles as part of their strategy. Yeah. I don't know any strategist better than Elon Musk at being crystal clear about what, what the company vision is. And he, he does that so well with his employees. Um, they know if they're working on something and it's not what he wants them to work on, that they won't be, they won't be having a job for very long. Uh, that is the nature of the company. He's very crystal clear. We're going to change the way that consumers uh, interact with, with electric 
electricity or the electric grid or whatever his, his vision is at any given point in time, everyone understands that. And he's never said, we're going to be a car company, right? That's never been the mission of Tesla. There's been the mission or the vision to change the, the, the way that cars are, are marketed and produced and sold. But that's, it's never to be a car company and be a successful car company. So it's really interesting the angle that he takes as a leader to position his company in a different spot than his competitors. Yeah. And, and just as you said that, I was just thinking about, uh, um, you know, uh, Netflix and I, we've seen a lot in content development, content delivery, especially is also uh, movie theaters, uh, chains or small businesses impacted, but the, uh, going back to the, the Netflix arc, even when they were early on and competing with blockbuster, you know, they had their kind of framing of the problem was, was delivering the content. It wasn't about getting you a VHS or DVD, right? Like Blockbuster was, you know, doubled down on, we just have to have as much physical content in the store to keep people happy. And, and Netflix, we're, we're going to look at what, what are the friction points between you and the, us and the customer, uh, enjoying content. And when you have that, fr- it, it completely changes the way you look at uh, both problem and opportunity, from my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And Tesla, obviously well known for that, for cutting the dealers out, right? They don't have, yeah. you don't drive past a Tesla dealer. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Right? yeah. So those friction points. Was And and because uh, <laughs> time and space is all convoluted for me this year, was it this year or was it last year when Tesla got rid of the traditional showroom? I think it might have oh. been last year. Uh, I don't know either. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to Google that. <laughs> yeah, one of my design friends is a huge uh, fan of Tesla cars, uh, and uh, he's waiting for for Cybertruck as his. Uh, that's his. You know, so somebody that live, lives in Iowa and still needs a pickup truck, but he's he's a big fan of uh, Cybertruck coming. But uh, yeah, that was, so I remember when he and I were chatting about that, uh, and even from like an innovation game, you could do like systematic inventive thinking on the whole showroom. What's the showroom for? What's, what's the experience? Uh, how much overhead is spent in having that building? So yeah, love- if I recall the Tesla showroom was typically one car inside <laughs> of a mall. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think a couple of years ago I was at Mall of America and I think they had they had like a, an S just sitting out if you needed to sit in it and see what it was like. A um, couple comments too for you uh, just on uh, Zoom and Amazon uh, to talk about the winners a little bit. From a UX perspective, I think for me, because working with different clients throughout the year, uh, you know, working with Teams, working with uh, Google, uh, working with myriad other uh, basically (laughs) kind of virtual meeting software systems. But I feel like Zoom is the easiest to get up and going for multiple people. I mean, we still have individuals that struggle with, uh, you know, you're on mute or (laughs) forgetting you're on camera or not. But those happen with all of the platforms. I think it's easy to get a meeting going. uh, And I think that's... For me, it was that was just kind of a user-centered design win for them on just ease of use to get started. They they removed a big friction point because um, for me, also for Teams, uh, and I know I know Microsoft's doing a lot uh, to enhance it. But uh, wait, am I using the web browser? Am I using the client for my my laptop? And uh, you know, multiple credential systems sometimes with Microsoft. Uh, kind of conflicting with each other. So yeah, and a horrible name, right? It's just in typical Microsoft fashion, just a horrible name <laughs> for an innovation teams. Right? Let's have a teams meeting. That's just a very confusing statement. Like it's either a team meeting, maybe with, without technology or a teams meeting with technology. Right. Uh, this is from the company that named their third Xbox, the Xbox one, right? <laughs> right. So it's not at all surprising. It's a, it's the Microsoft track record here. Uh, <laughs> That's but right. So there's something in the Zoom name too, though, that really it, there's an appeal to it. Uh, I think WebEx maybe had that cornered as well, or had that opportunity to capitalize upon the WebEx or the Zoom. Um, but that marketing is such a big piece of innovation as well. So I don't, I don't think for a moment that it could, you know, Zoom's success might just be just totally due to the name, and that could be, that could very well be the case. Right. Right. So, and just one quick uh, comment too on uh, Amazon. Uh, 
a good friend of mine, actually, and we actually met at Capella University. We were working there over 20 years ago and you know, wondering, can, can education be delivered online? Uh, what does it mean? And and now in 2020, we're seeing every, it doesn't have to just be uh, graduate school, right? It's everybody's forced to deal for better or worse with some form of online education. But a uh, friend of mine from those days, he's, he, he's a director in the uh, one of the UX programs at uh, Amazon has been there for about 11 years. And I think uh, from kind of the inside take that I have that I really appreciate is uh, there's also they have a bar raiser committee from a human resources perspective is even as a manager, if you want to pull the trigger on bringing in this a new employee, there's a group of people that basically have to agree that this this person coming on board is better than 50 percent that we already have. So that they're always committed to bringing in more talent. And also they for me, they do a great job of balancing the uh, entrepreneurial nature of experiments with their their big business and you know what they do with scale but i i think they also uh i'll throw it in the elon musk territory because i think bezos is also a kind of a lightning rod you know for different different criticisms and and celebrations but uh, he has always been about uh long view about principles and about and about sharing that clarity with 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 the organization and so I think when you are in times of uh, chaos and crisis, sometimes it's easier when people really understand uh, kind of their outcomes rather than, you know, like old school outputs that they're supposed to uh, focus on. So those are just some of my thoughts too, but I, I loved, I loved what you had here for, for the winners. Um, and I'm really curious to see it's kind of late in the year also just back to kind of the, the movie business models, uh, you know, some of the deals that we're seeing traditional movie houses making with streaming services, right? So uh, my daughter's talking about getting ready to see the new Wonder Woman movie on HBO Max. But as we've been trying to cut, which services are we using? Now we, now we have to figure out if we're getting HBO Max again. Yeah, it's, con it's <laughs> confusing for the consumers, but the consumers will ultimately be the judge of what is the the new business model that that's sustainable. Um, we still have a large cable TV package in my house, but I realize I'm the only one that uses it. So essentially it's just my streaming service of choice and it's far more expensive than everyone else's streaming service. <laughs> right. So yeah. and at some point that's, that's going to break, right? You know, when everyone looks at me because I tell them they can't get the next, uh, the next HBO max streaming service subscription. Uh, right. Yeah. So th there's some interesting things going on from business model evolution standpoint and all of these sectors. So uh, one of the things we were we were talking about as we were getting getting ready for this episode too was uh, you know highlighting some historical uh, parallels or even you know more specifically looking what might be similar and and one of the things that you had, had mentioned was the 1920s if you if you don't mind why why is it uh, you know something a hundred years in the past why is that a good kind of model model or parallel maybe not a model but right yes. a, a parallel <laughs> we don't necessarily want to repeat no we uh, don't but we we are we're seeing strong strong parallels to um, you know the uh, late teens through through the twenties and what we're kind of seeing right now in two thousand twenty yeah so the interesting thing here is I came into twenty twenty building a new set of content around the, the 19 teens and the, and the twenties and the situation that we had seen a hundred years prior around incredible technological growth. And I don't know if you want to call indoor plumbing technology, but for, for that time it was technology, <laughs> right? The, the proliferation of indoor plumbing, the pro proliferation of the electrical grid. Um, you had radios were invented in the twenties. You had television was the early television was invented in the twenties. You had all of these different things that were just coming online. It reminds me a lot of the technological growth uh, of the last 15 to 20 years where consumer habits are shifting and it's shifting the way that we live as a society. It's complete disruption, right? There's all of this technological disruption going on now, or there was coming into 2020. Um, and it's, I, I was just reminded of, wow, that's the same sort of thing that happened in the 1920s. And in both cases, it feels like if you were sitting there as part of it, maybe it was a little bit unchecked, right? There was probably no design to it. 
And, and so there's this incredible risk that you have all of these new technologies growing and proliferating that there is no end game in, in sight. And you're actually maybe moving all of society into a very unstable place, right? And that was the lesson that I took away from the 1920s was all this growth moved a lot of people to cities, moved a lot of people closer to the factory jobs that were now enabled because of technology, because of electrification, because of all these different th things. And ultimately everything broke down. Um, it, the Great Depression, was probably caused by a lack of faith in traditional institutions. Things just started to break down. Consumer trust broke down and everything, the bottom fell out, right? So I was wondering coming into 2020, whether we were on that path. Um, all, every, everything point, pointed to that. Um, yeah. And you know, I would call that a complete, there, there's only to your point about pandemics only coming around so once in a while. There's only, only so many times in human history where we can look, point to a, a moment in time and say, that was a complete dislocation of what everyone knew. So beyond disruption, but this idea of dislocation, it just society was moved very quickly to a different spot and no one knew what the new norms were. I right. feel like a lot of that was going on coming into this year. And certainly uh, maybe that's what we felt the effects of. So less so much that there was a pandemic, but more so much that the pandemic accelerated a lot of trends that we would have seen coming. You know, we hit a lot of walls a lot faster than we would have hit them uh, had we just waited it out. Something was bound to give. I don't believe that anything in 2020 was, was an experience that wasn't bound to happen at some point. Um, we hit them all the walls at once. Uh, and so it's, it's been very painful, uh, but we were heading that way. Yeah, I do feel like um, the, almost the consumer or just, everyday person's trust or faith in institutions using that term globally but just how that continues to to fall and so then also in that case who do you trust from uh you know it's it's so much easier to get competing messages out right now whether it's uh, misinformation or helpful information and we even saw you know from a you know different governments around the world, how, how did they respond? And not only federal, you know, national governments, but even locally with pandemic. And uh, to that point too, with the, some of the pressure, this might be thrown into some of the winners where I've seen some communities, this focus more on the pandemic, but uh, even changing rules uh, for small businesses. And so I'm thinking about restaurants. Um, <clears throat> so there are some, uh, Cities like New Orleans or Savannah, Georgia, where walking drinks are allowed, or I know like a friend of mine loves Berlin because he goes for a stroll <laughs> with a beer in hand, right? And uh, I know in my hometown, right, college town, that's frowned upon to have, especially yeah, lots of college kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things we did see is even um, uh, bars and restaurants pivoting, being able to, uh, you know, focus on carryout meals, but then also uh, new rules about basically takeaway drinks. Now you're not supposed to have them open drinks, but uh, you didn't have to go drinks before. And so there's one kind of uh, really interesting diner here that make, still makes their mixed drinks and puts them in to-go cups. And some of those pivots for me are really, really interesting. And is it from the, the government side was, uh, what I saw here in Iowa City is they they quickly changed uh, parking in front of these restaurants yeah. uh, from like traditional one hour, two hours, but to 10 minute or pick up only for spots right near restaurants to do what they could to help. So sometimes seeing that policy, but in general, yeah, the the lack of faith in these big governing organizations that are supposed to help, uh, I it. I think it just makes it more stressful and chaotic for, for the individual consumer. And yeah, yeah, we've seen, you know, the pandemic wasn't the only big disruption, you know, societal disruption of 2020. Right. We had civil unrest. We had obviously the political divisiveness here in the U S yeah. that, that has completely derailed everything. Yeah. Um, and uh, we had economic turmoil, right? We had massive unemployment and maybe that was caused by the pandemic, but that's not the pandemic, right? That's a completely right. separate issue yep. that you need to treat with a different set of policies. Uh, so this kind of perfect storm of all of these societal disruptions at once, who do you trust to your point, right? I think we can all point to 
people that we no longer trust that we once did. And we could all point to people that maybe emerged as, as somewhat of, of heroes or folk heroes and being able to understand the complexity of, of their systems and being able to work through it. Um, but there's been very few common patterns that I've seen, things that we can learn and say, yeah, that's the, that's the model going forward for dealing with this stuff. Um, I think that points to the complexity and the interrelatedness of all of the things that we're talking about, right? There's second order effects, there's, there's uh, unintended consequences of every decision that we make. And you can't know all of those second order effects and unintended consequences. And anyone who tells you they can is selling, you know, selling yourself. Right, right. That's, and I think going back to kind of one of the general principles for me with innovation, if anybody's guaranteeing your success, go the other way. Yeah. Uh, right. If they're framing it, let's look at how we can de-risk, how we can experiment, how we can learn. That's, that's what you should be doing. But I, I love it when people are going to guarantee you success. Yeah. This is the path forward. Yep. Well, maybe not <laughs> for whom. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Want to talk a little bit then uh, what might we learn then from that historical parallel and kind of going forward at, you know, some big themes that we've talked about in the past too, are sense making and wayfinding, but what, what lessons can we take? And then how do we start pointing, pointing the ship forward? Yeah, I mean, that's this is the fun conversation, right? <laughs> I think this is why a, a listener would tune in is to hear, <laughs> to hear these lessons, right? A lot of what we've covered so far is, like I said, we've been consuming that stuff all year. Most people have seen a lot of what we're talking about. Uh, you and I are both in unique positions based on what we do for a living to, to see some different patterns emerging. From a sense-making perspective, there's a, a model that I have started to become more tuned in with. I've, I've known it from my past, uh, it's pronounced Kenevin, C-Y-N-E-F-I-N, a Welsh word, a Kenevin, or Kenevin. <laughs> um, but it, it describes problem solving. And you know, I think we've seen problem solving on display in 2020 and, and have a new appreciation for how to solve different types of problems. And this helps me make sense of what I'm seeing. So that, that at its core, there's four types of problems. There's simple problems, there are complicated problems, there are complex problems and there are chaotic problems. I don't think before 2020, I had an appreciation for what a chaotic problem was. Uh, maybe in certain instances, I had a manager telling me, you have to make a decision now, this has to be this way, but it wasn't something pervasive, something that, that was gonna, you know, if I made the wrong decision or I didn't have any data to make any decision. Right. Um, that's essentially what's happened during the pandemic is businesses, governments, organizations have been forced to deal with a chaotic situation. What, th what that looks like is you have to make a decision on action before you understand the environment that you're sitting in. Your goal of making a decision when you're presented with a chaotic problem is to stabilize the problem. And so restaurants had to make a decision early on, how do we operate in the face of the pandemic, right? I was just told I can no longer have people in my establishment. How do I operate? That's a chaotic problem. That's not something they were ready for. It's not something that anyone was ready for. You have to make a decision and then you learn from that. And remarkably, that's essentially lean startup methodology in the innovation space is build, uh, measure, learn. And yep. essentially that's the way you cope with a chaotic problem. Um, the complex problems, I think any innovator is very, uh, is very in tune with complexity. That's where innovators make their living is trying to make sense of a complex situation, try to understand what are some of the biggest, uh, you know, highest leverage opportunities and exploit those. Um, but then I've, I've gotten this new appreciation for, com for simple versus complicated. Um, in the past, a complicated problem just means you lack the expertise to solve the problem yourself, but someone solved it somewhere else. Um, the, way, the quick way through is to bring in other, other experts and to invite them into the conversation so that they can lend their expertise and suddenly you have the expertise in the room and it becomes a simple problem again, right? An uh, electrical engineer understands things that you don't understand, but whatever your problem may be is a very simple problem to them. So if you just get the right people in the room, you can solve these problems. Um, so I've been using this to make sense of the world. And when I look at the decisions that are being made, I, I try to classify them. And I try to say, you know what, what the restaurants are going through, that's a, that's a chaotic problem where innovation continues to happen, that's people thriving in complexity. And it's, it's still happening here every day. And where I'm seeing businesses stall 
It's when they're trying to treat a complicated problem as a simple one. All right, they're trying to say, well, I think I, I think I can learn everything I need to know in order to solve that problem. But then they spend so much time trying to learn what they need to know. They, they neglect to bring in partner organizations. They neglect to bring in outside perspectives, which could have solved that problem with them very quickly. Yeah, thank you. What I really appreciate about this model and what you've been is is the notion of chaotic. Like you said, as as an innovator, we we're comfortable talking about the difference between complexity uh, and complicated quite often, right? Yeah, and that's where the innovator lives. Is yep. <laughs> if it's complicated, I'm not that interested in it. Yeah. <laughs> if it's but, complex, bring it on. <laughs> but and I I also really appreciate too what you're saying about the kind of the simple problem and and for whom it might be simple because. Uh, in the innovation class that I teach, one of the ways that I talk about uh, complicated versus complex is complex is a complex adaptive system. It's continuing to change on you even while you're working on it. Where a complicated problem for me might be disassembling a car engine. Right? Just yeah. the thought of that is overwhelming, right? Like I'm yeah. I'm happy to open the hood and just see where I where I can put fluids in <laughs> without breaking things, right? Like uh, windshield washer fluid goes there, good. But yeah, for a mechanic, they can take it apart, they can put it together, it, and the system itself didn't change because of what they're doing. But I love that notion that for for some partners and who you might collaborate with, you know that that to me draws on one of those like, is it a core competency of yours? If not, yeah. <laughs> you might need to outsource it because there's somebody that could solve that problem for you very quickly. Especially your your restaurant analogy. Did I just burn two weeks? of no revenue because I couldn't think about it you know, or couldn't think about it properly. And then you know, just with the the complicated versus um, complex, again, too, where we see problems is uh, on that sense-making front is applying that old model to a new problem. Yeah. It's almost like you misdiagnose it. And a very, very like broad stroke one for me is grease fires. Like maybe you've always succeeded at putting out fires quickly. You were taught that water suppresses. I love it. <laughs> uh, so you see it and you run at it and you, uh, but this one's a grease fire and you actually made the problem worse. Right. And yeah. that's, that's one of the interesting kind of dilemmas we sit in too. And so <laughs> I, I do really appreciate this, this model. Uh, and, and uh, when you had mentioned it too, I was thinking a little bit about VUCA. Right. And yeah, yeah for sure. That's the other model, which is yeah. in problems. And, you know, the the U.S. military kind of how they did start to apply that because they started to see that the the old model that was basically on um, almost efficiency uh, was was not winning anymore or they were struggling in ways that they hadn't. So, yeah, I love I, I, I really I'm going to have to dig into this a little bit more. So I really appreciate you bringing that. So to, here's to one of the interesting 2020 things that yeah. we all observe, but we didn't have the language to talk about it. So a lot of companies in March had to take all of their employees and relocate them to working from home. Right. And yeah. it was a chaotic problem, right? Your offices are closed by edict of the governor, right? right? You can no longer go into the office. That's chaotic. Right. So, so businesses had to make the decision, say, all right, we have to figure out how our 2,000 employees or 100,000 employees are now going to work from home. And they had to figure it out right then and there. That was always a complicated problem for them. They just ignored it and they put it in the complicated bucket. And they didn't believe that they had the, the reason or the ability to deal with it. Right? Right. A lot of leaders would have said, no, we, can never, we don't have the infrastructure to have everyone on VPN or have everyone with a laptop at home. But as soon as it became a chaotic issue for them, they figured it out, right? So they had, they had the metal in them all along to deal with it. And you just had to change the order of operation. Instead of learning everything you can about the situation, you have to just act first. And that, that's a pretty interesting lesson to learn is that some innovation just requires jumping in with both feet. Uh, right, right. Can you, can you recreate that chaotic decision-making process inside of a complicated problem to, as a substitute for a complicated problem? That's the whole idea behind Lean Startup. And it's fascinating to me to actually see how that all uh, played out in 2020. I, I, I agree. And I think to me, uh, as you're saying that, uh, also some of uh, Deborah Ancona's work at MIT on sense-making, her general model of how, how do you go through the process of sense-making is that uh, it is basically you have to explore the system, 
then you have to map it, right? Have a visual. This is what I think is going on, right? To quick, which helps quickly collaborate and don't spend too much time on the fidelity of your models. But then you have to actually act in the system uh, to to learn from it, right? So this is it's it's kind of a here's a quick hypothesis. This is why, and now we're going to do. And what did we what did we learn? And and having to do that quickly. Uh, this is reminding me a little bit. My dad was a career firefighter and uh, used to talk to him about theory X, theory Y, and theory Zs of management and how they're actually shifting gears in those on the fire department that, uh, it, depending on the culture you want in the firehouse is you know kind of one thing. But uh, when, you're, when you're at a fire, right, the, the officer that's in charge, also when they gave an order, they're doing some quick triage. When they gave an order, they're also assuming, like, if I told if I told this group, you know, be on the south wall, they 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 can't afford to have everybody run around and do their own thing because uh, as as they're seeing things shift and they need to communicate quickly. But then what he told me is also after they return to the firehouse, they do like, hey, I'd never seen anything like that. Neither did I, and they start yeah. to talk about that, and then it shifts how they handle, handle the next fire. Uh, and so that kind of dynamic system where sometimes if it becomes too kind of uh, command and control, yeah. you're not gonna, you're not going to learn. You need to build the feedback loops. in. Right. I think we've seen with some state and federal government <laughs> examples yeah. this year that the feedback loops simply weren't there. And it, you know, the, the information from the ground wasn't getting back to the decision makers and the decision right. makers were standing firm on their original decision. And it's unfortunate, but we, we saw it in a handful of places this year. Where, yeah, different leadership, different sense-making methodologies would have changed the outcomes. Absolutely. And uh, for me, a natural extension of sense-making is, is wayfinding. And one of the things uh, that, that you had mentioned as we were getting ready for this was kind of uh, the next normal or creating your future. So if you don't mind talking a little bit about wayfinding, uh, assuming that we are starting to make sense of this, how do, how do we go forward? Yeah, you know, wayfinding to me is about making choices to to move yourself to a different position, and then and then observing where you are, and then making another choice to move yourself to a different position. Um, we heard a lot about the new normal back in the early part of the pandemic. I haven't heard it as much lately because right. I think we've all kind of said, "Is this the? Nor- I don't want this to be the new normal." <laughs> um, but I always didn't like that term. And I started thinking, well, this is temporary. This too shall pass. This is just the next normal. And so how do you as a business or as an innovator, as a team leader, as an individual prepare for what's coming? Right. And I think this quote has been misattributed to hundreds and hundreds of people, but maybe it was Abraham Lincoln who said the best way to create the future uh, or the best way to, to deal with the future is to create it. Um, and, and that is one of the choices in wayfinding. So the, I think there's four choices with what's going on in the world. If you ignore everything around you and maybe try to resist it and fight it, we see that choice all over the place right now. There's people this is resisting. Fine. This is fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you can just try to delay things, right? You can say, you know, let's just punt that and push it down the field and we'll deal, deal with it when it comes. And I think those two solutions to wayfinding are a little dysfunctional, particularly right now with how fast things are changing and, and how you can't make sense of your world if you if you play those two games. Uh, third is, is you can adapt, right? And organizations can be very adaptive and resilient and they can recognize the patterns of change and they can respond to them. Um, but then I, I think these winners, the companies we were talking about earlier, were not adapters, right? These, these companies are creators and they're creating the future. So despite all of the turmoil around them, the Teslas, the SpaceXs, the Amazons are moving forward into a new spot. And they're always moving forward into a new spot. And it's a spot that no one else is occupying. Um, So I love this model of just how as an organization or as a team or as an individual, are you wired, right? Are you going to move into a new spot that is unoccupied or are you going to wait to see what's around you and just kind of shimmy and move with it? (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's ride the wave, right? Are you going to ride the wave? Or are you going to skate to the puck? And I think there's yeah. there's other there's companies and, and models, at least as an innovator that I admire, of that are skating to the puck. They're getting out in front. They're anticipating where the world's going to be. Yeah, I I love that. And uh, from my perspective too, another another element about uh, wayfinding, especially as it relates to dealing with um, kind of complex and chaotic elements, are uh, you don't need to have every step laid out. 
you have to know where you're at, where you're going, and what what are our few our choices for our next few best steps. And I think that also can be really hard for both individuals and teams and organizations. Is you know there are there are people that really just like more predictable day to day and tell me where are we going. Yeah. Uh, and there are others that are a little bit more flexible. But if you can still tell people this is the this is the goal, and here are the next steps that we're doing. And I think have healthy conversations too about, um, I think this is another one that I'm stealing from Amazon, but I think sometimes Bezos would say, I, I just need you to uh, uh, to go along with me or make this bet with me. No, like almost recognizing that this isn't an absolute answer, but I think this is the best answer we have right now or the best direction to go. And so how do you build trust? engagement and uh kind of grace as everybody's going through these but it oh uh, yeah <laughs> like you said the feedback loop right it's like some i think are either so far delayed or, or non-existent and stealing from system dynamics work right that that bullwhip effect is by the by the time the feedback loop is completed sometimes it's so old that you're 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 overcorrecting or not even responding to what the yeah. the issue at hand is yep so uh, I know one of the things too uh, that for me, uh, using Iowa City as an example. So overall, a uh, uh, economically healthy uh, small city, right? Um, but very much tied to a university, and so with a large large R one here, but also part of the Big Ten, right? That I think some of the big things that we've seen is in the hospitality industry when bars and restaurants uh, aren't hosting. Uh, 70,000 to 100,000 people, seven weekends in the fall, uh, not having graduation ceremonies, uh, changing the way that students come and do their tours if they're, they're thinking about going to college. And all of these ripple effects, along with uh, other benefits of being in a college town for me, like great, great music and art scene. But our our venues are all shut down. They can, to your to your point too, it might have been like, uh, it's not that they they planned on that. It was all of a sudden you can't have performances and seeing to me just seeing all these interconnected elements on uh, where where bars usually get <laughs> their customer and even if they change they still don't have as many customers available to them. Just seeing all these interconnected elements to me are are fascinating and I, I don't know if it's more like fascinating like a car wreck like it's like yeah, you it get because <laughs> there are so there's so many things that are just so frustrating just seeing uh these institutions that are struggling and and even ones that were considered kind of a cultural hub for the community the mill restaurant for example uh that they I think they were on a razor's edge before and you know the pandemic was enough to push them over the edge but when you still have to pay rent and you can't, you don't have anybody coming in and like they even try, they even tried to do curbside and delivery, but uh, turn, it turned out that they were, they were losing money uh, from a staffing perspective. Right. So I don't know that all of, all of this, I guess to say is it's uh, sometimes in, until these things hit, it's hard to recognize how interconnected these systems are. Yeah. I think it's a reflection of our economic system, right? It's a reflection of the capitalistic system is that we trust the, the business owners to make the decisions about what's next, right? Where are you going? And they're often making decisions very much with, on a single track, right? The, the event planning business owner is saying, oh, I need to buy more high tops. <laughs> and that's an investment that they're yeah. making. And then they're, they're expecting that investment will pay off down the line. What, what you're describing is, this interconnectedness where one thing can throw off all of these other uh, assumptions and, and, and business models that have been built upon this complex econ economy. And so the question becomes, is there room for better design in an economy? And I'm not advocating for central planning, but maybe for better words to describe how things should operate or, or what we're actually trying to create. And I think this goes back to my point about the 1920s, as well as the early part of this century, it feels like the technology was growing at an unchecked pace. And so it only, it only takes one wrench in the spokes to your point 
to unravel. I'm mixing metaphors here, and I apologize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so to cause this chain reaction of all of these other things falling to the floor. Um, if we had common design elements like sustainability and justice, and, and you know some other right. some other system values in mind when we're making decisions as a society, maybe some of these implicate maybe some of these effects are less likely to occur um and, and maybe that's why some of these companies are coming out of, surely they have a profit motive but how you know is there a double bottom line or a triple bottom line that yeah. that we should be managing to that will help us as a society be more resilient in the face of, of some of these disruptions because we're all building for the same purpose i, I think that right. would really help some of these situations not uh stop them from occurring yeah, to your, your mention, like uh, a wrench getting thrown in the works I think when for what, 20 years, I think uh, a goal for a lot of physical goods was just in time delivery. And so when there isn't, there isn't uh, much by way in your warehouse, so we're seeing toilet paper shortages yeah. uh, and uh, what we, I, I don't know if you experienced it uh, in your neck of the woods, but one of the things that happened here was then for a while, our a big grocery chain could not get paper napkins. Uh, they had, uh, everything had shifted to <laughs> toilet paper. So they were full up on paper towels and toilet paper, but you couldn't get paper napkins because, uh, again, the, the toilet paper folks, that bullwhip, right, that delayed feedback loop, that had already sorted itself out, but everybody felt like the the model wasn't working so i i find that that part uh pretty interesting and and then on the restaurant front one of the things i'll share with you is uh, big grove uh brewing uh their and their tap room operations here i think they had gone through um three major expansions and one of the things a little while ago was that they added their own canning line and uh so one of the things that actually turned out well for them was uh that they were basically able to pivot almost all their brewing into canning rather than tap room kegs, but uh, because they could, it was, it was on and off. Can they have people? They can't. Okay. They can have people on the patio, uh, you know, and, and different rules and, and they're doing a great job adjusting to that. But I know when I was talking to their CEO, uh, he had, he had mentioned that uh, that was just, you know, one of, one of the things for them to be nimble was they actually, were able to pivot because they had these resources available. And so with that, from an innovation perspective too, I always, always wonder about kind of the, I guess I'll go back to systematic inventive thinking, but the inside the box elements, right? That what do we have available to us? Because right? this is it, certain things. Yeah. Are so like, <laughs> and, and I think a, a mentality there too, is that you're not, it's, it's not waiting for Superman, so to speak. Well, if we only get this, or if yeah. this happens outside, and it's easy for me to say right now, but I, I do wonder about uh, also some of these these winning cultures that we've talked about from uh, people that are able to adapt or create. How much is it too that they see uh, and understand their resources and how they can almost reassemble or redeploy their resources rather than just kind of like you said punting or almost giving up because oh I guess we don't have that now so yeah well some of the most powerful factors and in innovation can be your constraints, right? What you don't yeah. have, right? To your point, you, you have this set of things and that's it. And when someone right. tells you, you have to get the solution from that set of things on the table, yep. you'll find a way, right? You'll, you'll be industrious and you'll figure it out. Um, 2020 introduced a lot of constraints to people and said, you know, you have to operate in the absence of customers in your store or whatever it might be. And that can be a great way to spur innovation, right? The, what I'm excited about is, is this term of crisis innovation was not in my lexicon prior to 2020. Yeah. I would have understood if you said it to me what crisis innovation probably is, but I didn't have any appreciation for it. And now I think it's becoming a mainstream term. And it's been a while since innovation has actually had a new, a new term <laughs> <laughs> uh, thrown in. So, so it's pretty exciting, right? Lean Startup, which I mentioned a few times, is the last time I can think of something really big and meaningful being introduced to the innovation uh, space. So now we have this how do you deal with complexity or, or, uh, or, or how do you, how do you deal with crisis, right? And chaos, I guess, is where crisis innovation occurs. Um, we're learning a ton of lessons this year and there's so much that we can take and build into business sustainability plans going forward. 
that hopefully there's a muscle memory of, of the lessons of 2020. Uh, and it's not like what you were describing with your relatives who, who started taking more conservative actions as a result right. of what, what happened to them. But instead, it's looked at as, well, there, there's certain values that we need to build into our innovation, to build into our business model. And resilience, sustainability, and some of these others should be at the forefront of every business model change that you make. It should be the reason for it, not the profit motive. But Yeah, know, I'd love to see line. more kind of double or triple bottom line elements that you had mentioned, too, because it's is it realizing we're, we're all in this together and... Like realizing how uh, you know getting getting benefits to certain people can also have extended benefits or ripple effects, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to to check too on other if there were other lessons that you're seeing because I also but uh, I do want to talk about what we might be optimistic about in, in uh, 2021, and I think some of that too is that like how how might we uh, innovate better? How might we design better uh, with these lessons learned? But are there other lessons that are standing out to you from, from the past year? Yeah, we've talked about a lot of them, but maybe just to summarize a few of them, like this whole ability to do something that you didn't think was a good business model move before, but now you're doing it. So there's like the digitalization of customer experience of, of employee experience that happened overnight. Um, it taught a lot of companies that they could do it and that there was not that much to be afraid of. And in fact, you know, I, I watch my wife who works for a financial services company work now, and that company is getting more out of her now with her working from home than they were when she was commuting right. an hour each day, you know, back and forth and was restricted to a nine to six calendar or whatever, whatever yeah. calendar was. Now she's working at all hours. Right. Um, so perhaps some of these shifts were actually benefits to the bottom line of the company and they should have made them a lot earlier. Uh, but, you know, we don't know the long lasting psycho, uh, physical or psychological impacts of a lot of the stuff that's happening as well. So I would caution against that lesson, just, right, you know, right. not rush into it because there's going to be this, the second order effects. Like what are the employee health impacts of going to entirely work from home? Um, we saw companies pivot this year with novel approaches that I didn't think were, were really possible or some stuff that we were going to see in our lifetimes. Um, so that's a big lesson that the things are possible and given just fast changing environment, you, you can see a radically different solution set appear almost overnight. Um, the one that comes to mind right now is Chipotle uh, recently launched completely digital restaurants. So there's no seating, there's no uh, counter, right? There's no, you don't go to a cash register to pay. It's just a, it's a kitchen with a window and um, you order completely online. You just go pick it up and the payment transactions already been made. Uh, fascinating, right? I didn't even think that was something that we were going to see, right? I never considered that that was an important business model and neither did Chipotle, right? It took right. a pandemic for them to, to realize it. But now this affords them the opportunity to go into new areas that they never went to. Maybe, maybe it's a dangerous neighborhood where crime was a problem. Well, it's no longer a problem because all you have is a little window now. Right. Um, <laughs> or, or maybe it allows them to go in a place where rent's really high. And so they, didn't, they couldn't afford a storefront and they, they couldn't operate there. So suddenly the business model is starting to change. So these are some of the lessons I'm taking away. And I can't make sense of all of them, but they're just so many of them are just fun to watch and try to diagnose and, and Monday morning quarterback, figure right. out what's going on and why they made that call. And it's really interesting to, to watch. Yeah. I like, I like the idea. A couple things that you were talking about there too is um, for me too, is also the, the, the Monday morning quarterbacking, looking at this or find, you know, finding things that are fascinating and then wondering about um, what getting rid of some old folklore does for those, you know, now if we do this, like what new opportunities might, you know, so maybe we had to do it for this one reason, but then we realized summary of it yep. that we didn't have to have it. Um, and the sacred uh, cows, right? <laughs> right. Right. And, and, but nobody can tell you why that cow was sacred. <laughs> it, it was always treated as sacred, but nobody remembers why. Uh, That's exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, with uh, the um, 
the notion of uh, you had mentioned muscle memory earlier too. And that's one of the things I think uh, maybe some of these winners that we saw is because um, they've trained for it in, in some ways, not that they trained for a pandemic, but I do, I do think about uh, corporate innovation, much like an Olympic athlete or uh, just, or, or kind of just a recreational athlete too, is uh, if you don't train and stretch yourself, you're not going to get better. And and if you overexert yourself because you haven't trained, you're, you're going to injure yourself. Right. And so like, how do we build this? And I've, I've talked about creativity and innovation uh, are a lot like uh, reverse on a car. You don't always need it, but when you need it, you really, really, really need it. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think we're finding out that there were some organizations that had cars that didn't have a, a reverse gear on there, right? They yeah, just, I love that analogy. They just got stuck. And so, uh, I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about, uh, you know, where, where we've seen some wins in innovation and, uh, complex problem solving that could be extended. Uh, and, and maybe this is being, you know, too optimistic, but that is like, see, we can, we can get through these big challenges or, you know, like even, even, as you used your your wife's uh, telecommuting example, we never thought we'd have a fully remote workforce. You know, what does that do for us now? What else might we consider? And and also see, we got through that, or we did it. To yeah. your point, we don't know what some of those long term psychological or health, like, you know, because I I do know that there are there are days where it's just everybody. Well, we already know you're at home, so we know you can take this meet as long as you're not in another meeting. You should be able yeah. to have this meeting. And you, and you don't of, have to commute, so you should be able to start earlier. <laughs> I'm reminded of a quote I heard a few years ago. It's the smartest, per, the smartest people in the world don't work for you, right? <laughs> because you're limited to your geography. You're limited to your, your number of headcount. You're limited to whatever it is that, that you limit yourself to. But once the digital interconnectedness, the flatness of the world proliferates, you can have the smartest people in the world consulting on your problems at the click of a button now. Yeah. Let me call that guy in Senegal who knows about what I'm dealing with and we'll have a Zoom at eight o'clock at night and, and we'll figure out how to deal with this problem. That wasn't available, particularly to a lot of companies which had very strict controls on, on what type of information was allowed in, what type of information was allowed in, allowed out. Some yeah. of that's shifting now, and it's going to unlock a world of possibilities, and it's going to create opportunities in corners of the world that no that didn't previously have opportunity either. So I can imagine that my wife's company could start hiring outside of this area, right? right. And that could become very common practice for them. Yeah, I, one of the things I love about that too is uh, some of the pivots I saw. So it, in the conference uh, space, so. Um, you know, had multiple speaking engagements this year that shifted from uh, like I know one was going to be in New Orleans in April for me really looking forward to, you know, cause part of it was my, my talk was going to open the first day of the full conference. So then I have that pressure off. Then I was going to be in New Orleans, you know, plenty of good food, good drinks and could really enjoy it. And, you know, I, I miss not being able to collaborate with, with colleagues there. But one of the things that I've seen shift is people that couldn't always go to conferences because the time away, the, the cost of travel, either out of their budget or their corporate training budget. But, and now we're seeing, we're seeing conferences shift. I don't know if the better or worse, but what I do like seeing is uh, a lot more uh, availability to people that weren't allowed to attend because now you can even conferences are a lot cheaper. You can get a ticket in, uh, you can still get work done, right? My my wife usually had her biggest academic conference of the year is the weekend before Thanksgiving, and so we had jokes about uh, you know the uh, weekend before Thanksgiving, at, like late Sunday night was you know she she should just be getting on her last flight right now heading home. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's gone, and, right? It's gone. I walked in and my wife while she was working, she's like, Shh, "I'm on a conference or I'm in a conference." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you are. You're in, you're in my office, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm, I'm kind of curious too to see just what uh, conferences will look like, and and back to your, uh, back to when we were talking about depression too. I'm wondering when individuals are going to feel safe sitting 
in an indoor space with 300 other people, 400 other people. Yeah, That's I'm also curious. Time. Yeah. It might be a long time. Wow. Well, Aaron, this was an absolute pleasure. I loved uh, loved diagnosing and, and hearing your perspective on uh, 2020. And we'll have to uh, keep in touch on what, what we see emerge in 2021. Yeah, I, know. I know we will. This was an exciting year as an innovator. Uh, maybe that's the only, <laughs> the only uh, silver lining that, that I can find. Um, right. Just to learn new things, to see things in action that I never thought I would see. I'm glad that, that you invited me on here to... to make sense of it all uh, yeah. and to talk through some of it. I really appreciate your perspective and thanks for sharing some of the examples that are happening in your town. Um, I'm going to use some of those in my work. So thanks for that. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks. Thanks again. This was, uh, it was such a pleasure to have you here. It's always a pleasure to uh, get to talk innovation with you. So wishing you and your family a uh, safe and uh, happy holiday season and the best in the new year. Thanks, Matt. Same to you. Take care. Take care.